Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Robert Talis. He is W. Alton Jones Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. His main area of research is political philosophy with an emphasis on democratic theory and liberalism. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So, Dr. Talis, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Ricardo, thank you. I was very pleased to get the invitation to join you because I like your program so much. Well, thank you so much for the <laughs> kind words. <laughs> so um, before we get into political philosophy uh, specifically, tell us a little bit ab about pragmatism, because I know that's something you explore in your work. What is it and how does it apply specifically to political philosophy? Very good, um, and I'm 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 glad that you started there because um, pragmatism as a philosophical framework or orientation informs a lot of my work on particular things. So it's always nice to start with the the background. Um, so pragmatism was a an idiom. Uh, I don't want to call it a school. Uh, it's an idiom of philosophy that is indigenous to North America um, that emerged at the end of the 19th century and flourished in the 20th century and continues today. It's a form of empiricism um, and naturalism. So empiricism is the view that uh, uh, all knowledge has its root in experience or that experience is where we begin philosophically thinking about whatever it is we wanna think about. And it's a naturalism because it, um, rejects the idea that um, uh, there are uh, facts about the world that transcend experience or that there are um, philosophical um, uh, uh, entities or that, that philosophy has to begin with some other world other than the, the one that we live in. Um, so naturalists are suspicious of transcendental entities and abstract objects and these kinds of things. So it's a philosophy that's rooted in a standard kind of empiricist naturalist tradition, much like British empiricism of Locke and uh, you know, Hobbes and Locke and, and, and Hume. However, uh, beginning with uh, the, um, the founder of the idiom, Charles Sanders Peirce, um, pragmatism um, works with a um, with a more complex conception of experience. So the, on the British empiricist model, uh, simplifying of course, uh, experience is always understood in the first instance at least as sense perception. That experience is what happens when you open your eyes and take in a breath uh, and touch things, right? Um, and to be sure, um, it's perfectly reasonable why somebody might begin there and thinking about what experience is. But um, starting with Peirce and then through William James and John Dewey, what emerges is a conception of experience that is more Darwinian. Um, now note, uh, uh, you know, um, Hume and Locke uh, and, and, and Hobbes and Berkeley, uh, the British empiricists are pre-Darwinian. Um, so in Peirce, James and Dewey, the American, the founding American pragmatist, you get this conception of experience that tries to understand experience primarily in terms of 
the organism's interaction with various features of its environment. So you get this Darwinized biological, not merely cognitive or, or mental, but a biological conception of experience as a kind of activity, as um, experimenting in the world. Okay, I could go on about pragmatism and, 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 and what follows from it. Let me just say one quick thing and then get to the political philosophy question. Um, when you see, when you are an empiricist and a naturalist and you see experience in that Darwinized way, it turns out that a lot of the preoccupations of um, a, much of 17th and 18th century, you know, through the early 19th century philosophy, what we call the early modern period, Turns out that a lot of the problematics of philosophy um, from the early modern period get refigured, right? Because think about, you know, bent sticks in water, or the problems of, you know, uh, am I dreaming, Descartes' problem, am I dreaming right now? You know, so just think about all of the problems of knowledge, the metaphysical problems about um, uh, uh, uh uh, objects and can we know objects in themselves, so on and so forth. When you think about, when you're an empiricist and you think about experience in this biological way, a lot of that gets reshuffled in ways that um, pragmatists like to say sort of dissolve uh, the philosophical problems. And in fact, one of the, I think, lasting impacts of pragmatist philosophy beyond continuing work on pragmatism is that it introduces, I think, into the philosophical idiom in the West, at least, that distinction between solving a philosophical problem and dissolving it, giving up on it, showing that it was poorly framed in the first place, and so no longer calls for an answer. In fact, um, the pragmatists, again, starting with Peirce, but you get plenty of this in James and Dewey, um, see that that's their main sort of critical mode of philosophy, is showing that the long-standing problem doesn't ask, we no longer need to solve the problem of knowledge. We can dissolve it because we can call into question and, and, and challenge and then eventually replace the terms that make, it, that make that problem formulable in the first place. Last thing on this for uh, interested uh, uh, listeners, you know, think about Hilary Putnam, a good, more contemporary pragmatist. Um, you know, Putnam, um, Putnam's answer to skepticism, right, brain in a vat skepticism, is, the, is a pragmatist answer because the ultimate upshot of that argument that listeners might be familiar with is not that we've proven that we're not brains in a, you know, brains floating in a vat of cerebrospinal fluids so in some lab somewhere. The Hillary Putnam upshot or the argument, uh, the, the, the upshot of Putnam's argument is that the very premise that we are brains in a vat is really nonsensical. It's non-formulable. Once you understand the, uh, the, the once you understand how, how reference works, you no longer get <laughs> right to formulate that skeptical problem. That's a good example of the kind of pragmatist undercutting of a philosophical problem rather than trying to solve it in the terms in which it's posed. Okay, how does this all figure into political philosophy? Right. Um, so uh, it's, it's really John Dewey. So he's the, uh, the, the last of the three, of the, 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 the trinity that founds the idiom. Um, 
where um, political philosophy and in particular democratic theory becomes sort of central to the pragmatist trajectory. Peirce, um, you know, Peirce was not a political thinker. Peirce never projected. Peirce was a, a kind of academic outsider actually. And, um, and, and a big, big thinker, right? Thought of himself as the next Hegel, you know, that next Kant or Hegel. And so was uh, never able to uh, secure a, a lasting academic position because he apparently was a very difficult human being. But um, he was constantly regularly projecting a large, like first critique style volume or, or phenomenology of spirit kind of volume that would encompass his entire system. And so we have in his unpublished works, lots of projections and outlines and you know drafts of a table of contents. And there's no political stuff ever in Peirce's mind as part of the system, although there's almost, it's a kitchen sink otherwise, right? So everything else is in there. Uh, James didn't write much about politics, although a lot of what he did write has some political implications. It's with Dewey that you get what has since become understood, I think rightly as a core pragmatist insight which is that democracy in particular is the political expression or the political manifestation of the conception of philosophy that begins with experience understood as this Darwinian experimenting with the world, right? So what, uh, what, what leads Dewey to make that connection is um, uh, Dewey sees um, replaces the traditional problem of knowledge with this idea about how does scientific inquiry work? It seems very successful. How do we understand inquiry? Inquiry is not merely a beholding of the world. Inquiry, as the scientist practices it, is experimenting with the world, formulating hypotheses, testing them, revisiting, reformulating, testing again, these kinds of things. And Dewey thinks that all rational thought is this kind of experimental tinkering, revising, going back and trying again, um, being pushed around by the world, pushing back in certain ways. And Dewey understood democracy as the political expression in the collective and social realm, right, of that kind of attitude. So in it's in Dewey that we get this connection. Now, uh, as, uh, you know, I'm not a, a cheerleader for any of these guys, by the way. I'm not, a, I don't consider myself a scholar uh, of, of, uh, of, of any particular philosopher for that matter. Uh, but certainly I'm not a scholar of Dewey or James or Peirce, although my work engages with their work. Um, as a political philosopher, pragmatism, I think, um, uh, allows me to say or think the following kinds of thoughts. Um, Democratic politics, in part, is an epistemic endeavor, right? Uh, if it's experimenting, if it's this sort of uh, inquiring, it looks like the um, our account of democracy's merit, our account of its value, perhaps even our account of why we should favor democratic political arrangements is going to invoke certain kinds of epistemic considerations. Now that's different from what is a still to this day pretty mainstream, although it's no longer, uh, uh, I wouldn't say it, it's obviously a dominant view, but uh, you know, a pretty mainstream view in democratic theory and a long standing view in democratic theory has always been that 
the merits or value or justification of democracy lies strictly with something else, some moral value. Democracy realizes a commitment to equality or fairness or collective autonomy or some more what we might call sort of sociological value. Democracy is, is stable. Democracy allows a peaceful transition of power. Democracy staves off revolutions, uh, these kinds of things. Um, neither of which are epistemic. I think that, and this is one of the reasons why I think my views are still identifiably pragmatist. I think that the epistemic uh, is a, a separate, irreducibly uh, distinct uh, site for thinking about the value of democracy. How's that? I, I could go on, but let me, how, how's that to start? Yeah, no, that that's a good introduction, let's say. <laughs> but I would like to ask you about certain particular uh, issues that political philosophers point to when it comes to democracy. So what about the problem of pluralism, first of all? What is it and how can we deal with it? Sure. So um, here's one place in my thinking where um, uh, John Rawls, the uh, you know, t 20th, uh, early 21st century Harvard philosopher of, uh, uh, of, of, of a kind of influence that's really hard to underestimate. Um, here's where John Rawls, a feature of John Rawls's thought figures very centrally in my thinking. Um, and again, for listeners who are familiar with this, uh, just as a side note, uh, I'm deeply influenced by the parts of Rawls that are, are not commonly thought to be the most influential part. I, you know, the, the first book, A Theory of Justice, is a wonderful work of political philosophy and I admire it and all the rest. I don't think that's where the deepest insight is. Um, I think the deepest insight, Ricardo, is about pluralism. Um, and I think that Rawls um, complicated our thinking about pluralism in politics in a way that is, um, not only astute, but I think productive. Here's Rawls's thought. Now, the problem of pluralism, of course, is the problem that there's moral disagreement. And some of the moral disagreement is of such a character as to be viewed among the disputants as disagreement among something non-negotiable, right? Something non-compromisable. Um, that uh, when we disagree about politics, we're not always just disagreeing about two acceptable views and we're arguing about which one is optimal. Sometimes, uh, our often maybe even, our political disputes are among options where among the disputants, you know, one or other of the leading options is morally suboptimal in a way that's very serious or intolerable even. Mm -hmm. So the problem of pluralism is the problem that um, under standard constitutional or liberal democratic institutions, institutions that treat us as political equals, one of the upshots of that treatment as a political equal is that we get to make up our own minds. We're not, we're not, uh, we don't get to dictate to others what they must think. Um, and so moral and political disagreement seems to be the upshot of liberal democratic institutions. The Rawlsian insight is that the scope of that disagreement, although it's very, very broad, 
there are going to be very severe disagreements, even among people who all are committed to liberal democracy. That's, the, I think, the, the really important insight of the later roles, of the roles of the book Political Liberalism. We're not talking about the problem of pluralism being the problem that, well, under certain kinds of social and political conditions, some people are going to wind up being misogynists and other people are going to wind up being fascists and these other people are going to wind up being hierarchical thinkers and they're not going to really be, their convictions aren't going to be fully on board with the moral premises of constitutional democracy. The Rosian insight is bracket those people off for a second. We still have a big problem. The big problem is those same institutions will create conditions of deep moral disagreement among the people who are on board with liberal democracy, right? <laughs> because the Kantians, the utilitarians, the atomists, uh, the Hobbesians, right, whoever you want to, the Humeans, they're going to have philosophically opposed conceptions of the fundamental values of liberal democracy, equality, autonomy, fairness, uh, liberty. And each of their conceptions of these ideas will be fully consistent with a legibly liberal democratic order. So they want the same thing at the end of the day, but their disagreement over the fundamental ingredients of that order can under certain contexts fall into this category of disagreements where among the disputants, the other side's uh, uh, commitments are non-negotiably unacceptable. And so the Rawlsian sees, and I, I, I'm a Rawlsian in this little regard, right? The Rawlsian sees the problem of pluralism as the problem of reasonable pluralism, the problem of deep moral disagreements among all the liberal constitutional Democrats in the room leaving aside a different problem that say it's different is not to say that it's not important. The different problem of the pluralism that emerges as such, you get, you know, uh, uh, you, know you, you get oligarch, you know, people who are oligarchs and epistocrats and, you know, uh, we're leaving those anti-democratic views aside. Even if you get the people who all want at the end of the day to live under a liberal constitutional order, you still have a problem of, giving a philosophically robust enough account of the fundamental ingredients or commitments of that order to start running a political uh, 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 mode of association, you still have enough disagreement among all of the, the liberal constitutional Democrats in the room to make for a problem. That's why, last point, and then you could follow up and let me know if you want to get deeper into this. That's one of the ways in which I think the pragmatist insight that epistemic considerations are part of the story of the value, merit, and justification of roughly a liberal constitutional order. That's why I think it's so valuable, because I want to argue, ultimately do argue, right, that there's, there might be a broad range of reasonable disagreement about moral commitments about what the nature of equality and liberty and autonomy and all the rest of the uh, uh, values uh, that, that go into a liberal democratic order. There are lots of moral, lots of room for reasonable moral disagreement uh, over those fundamental liberal democratic values. I want to say there's a lot less room for reasonable disagreement over the epistemic norms that are in play 
And so I want to argue that we can begin. Maybe we can't give a full case for the merits of liberal democracy. We can begin our argument for liberal democracy by looking at the epistemic stuff first. How's that sound? Well, let's go on, then perhaps we can decide on it. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, okay, so before I get into the another problem I would like to address, uh, on what grounds would you say is democracy justified as a political system then? Well, um... I think that um, uh, it's helpful just to begin with another, what I see as a pragmatist insight. There's no justification überhaupt or as such, right? I want to say there's justification that's not in the sense of the fallacy, that's ad hominem. We are justifying two, right? There's not just justification as such. Okay. So I want to say, well, justification of a political order is always justification two. When, uh, here's another pragmatist move, apart from just, you know, doing political philosophy in my office here, when does the question of political justification of the overall democratic order arise? And so I want to say, so justification is not a patient too. It's justification to some particular audience under a context, right? Within, within a circumstance. Um, okay, what are the circumstances, another good pragmatist question, what are the circumstances under which justification for the democratic order is demanded? And here I want to say, okay, the question of justification arises in, in context, or most typically, or, it, or when it or arises, when it needs an answer, it's arisen in a context where it's the day after the election and somebody, some fellow citizen is deeply disturbed by the outcome and is wondering why uphold any of the norms? If democracy can produce this result, why not defect? Why not um, exercise sort of a Hirschmanian exit? Why not get out? Why not move? Why not um, uh, become uh, an opponent of the institutions and work to uh, unseat them or undermine them? So I wanna say that's where our justificatory story should begin with that, that fellow citizen who sees in a democratically produced result something unacceptable, non-negotiable, intolerable. And now we wanna say, okay, Here's the reason why you should not suspend your commitments to democratic institutions, but uphold them. That doesn't mean that you can't be a critic or a resistor or a dissenter. It just means, <laughs> right, it just means right, that uh, uh, you have to work for, you have to work within the confines of democratic norms for the sake of repairing, improving, and rebuilding your democracy. Now there, I wanna say any straightforward value argument that says, you know, well, Ricardo, you know, you wanted, you wanted policy P, everybody else wanted policy Q. Policy Q looks to you not merely regrettable, but intolerable, but you know what? Fairness is really important. So the value of fairness outweighs 
the badness of this outcome. That kind of argument or equality or autonomy or whatever, that kind of argument looks to me like a non-starter in this context. So I want to argue and have argued that um, there are epistemic norms that democracy as a political uh, mode of, of organization helps to manifest in a way that's better than any of our available alternatives. That's another crucial pragmatist, pragmatist writer, right? It's like, these are comparative arguments always. We're not, when we're justifying democracy, we're not just, you know, proving democracy from a set of premises. The argument is always gonna be intrinsically comparative. Democracy is better than some range of options, some feasible, some range of feasible options. Um, and I don't think that that makes the argument crassly instrumental, right? I still think you can think that there's intrinsic value to democracy, even if you think the case for that value is fundamentally comparative. Um, so I wanna say that there are epistemic norms that a democratic order does the best to secure given our options. And that's the, and your investment in making sure those epistemic norms can be upheld that's the reason why you should sustain your democratic commitments rather than defect and go rogue. How's that? <laughs> so, okay, so apart from the issue of people in democracy having moral disagreements, what about the issue of public ignorance? I mean, because that's another big one, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. Um, and let me just start by conceding something. Okay. Um, it is, it strikes me as undeniable that especially in the United States today, even voter ignorance is a, the level of voter ignorance is atrocious, right? <laughs> um, I the think that's people, not just in the United States. Let me just It's say. not just, but it's yeah. especially in the United States, right? <laughs> uh, um, that is to say, and this is, I think, an important point. Um, levels of voter ignorance are variable. Um, so, you know, you go to some of the Scandinavian democracies and vote, there still might be a problematic level of voter ignorance, but it's not anywhere near the level of ignorance that you see in the U.S., uh, Canada, average voters in Canada uh, um, uh, have more political base knowledge, you know, knowledge of the, 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 the basic facts of their constitution than the average American voter. And the fact that it's variable, I think, is important because um, I think it's very easy to be led by some of the voter ignorance data in the U.S. It's very easy to be led to think that human beings as such, or it's the something about the structure of human cognition that mm -hmm. voters are ignorant. If that were true, you wouldn't see the kind of a variation that, that we get. Okay, so, but let me just concede. Voter ignorance is extreme, it's atrocious, and it's a real problem. So I'm also not an optimist, that's another pragmatist. I'm not an optimist, right? <laughs> <laughs> about any of this stuff, uh, you know, I'm trying to lay out what it would be to try to make it work and to make it better and to set ourselves up so that, set ourselves up so that we could improve it. But I'm not an optimist. Um, now, and again, let me just run through the, you know, um, 
uh, in the U.S., um, and you could tell this, by the way, just by some of how the midterm campaigning is going. In the U.S., you know, um, uh, voters think that elected officials control the prices of things, for example. Now, it might be that the president of the U.S. can introduce policy or can engage in some kind of diplomatic interactions with world leaders that will have the effect of uh, raising or lowering, you know, the output of oil barrels and things like this. But the American voter tends to think that, you know, Joe Biden sets the price of gasoline at the pump at the gas station on the corner, for example, and they mm -hmm. want to blame him or, you know, credit him. Okay. Um, that's one thing. Um, so the actual office, the duties of political office are often mysterious to the average American voter, and the average voter doesn't know how to assign responsibility for particular policy and other features of the political order to the right representative. Um, the American voter doesn't know the three branches of government established in the Constitution, can't tell you what's in the Eighth Amendment. You know, they can tell you about the Second Amendment just fine. Uh, they, can't, <laughs> uh, they can't tell you about the Eighth Amendment, uh, uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Um, uh, they, you know, don't know the history of the constitutional jurisprudence, despite all of the talk uh, that goes on in the U.S. Uh, among average voters about what the Constitution is and how important it is. There's very little grasp of the Constitution as a full document, even though there is a lot of um, uh, public discourse around some particular bit of the Constitution, uh, like the Second Amendment or the First Amendment. Okay, and I could go on with this. So you, you might think of as these sort of nuts and bolts data about American government that look like they're plausibly regarded as necessary conditions for understanding broader political phenomena. Looks like this, this basic nuts and bolts information is mysterious to most voters. And um, some, uh, Jason Brennan, the political philosopher, Ilya Soman, the uh, political theorist and, and law professor, my colleague here at Vanderbilt in the political science department, Larry Bartels, right? Um, take this data, which is very robust, and say, voters don't have this basic knowledge, they must not have this more sophisticated kind of knowledge, and so they can't do what democracy would ask, ask them to do in order to produce um, uh, reasonable, let alone rational, but even minimally reasonable government. And so democracy on this account winds up looking roughly like what you get uh, criticized in Plato's Republic, right? It's the kid let loose in a candy store view of politics, right? They're driven by irrational forces. There's a strong man or some elite that figure out ways to tap into the, uh, the channels by which people can be flattered, right? This is a, a big thing in Plato, flattering the masses. And that's how people get control and people get control. They want to hold on to control. And so the idea of governing for the common good goes out the window and politicians, once they get elected, take their job to be re-election. And the way you re-elect is by playing on the sites of ignorance in ways that uh, stimulate voters to go cast a vote in your favor. I accept that entire picture. <laughs> <laughs> However, as just descriptively accurate, 
Mm -hmm. The conclusion to be drawn or the strength of the conclusion to be drawn though seems to me to still be in question. Now, let me say something philosophical. Uh, um, you know, I, I gave a talk this past weekend and I was making a similar point and I said, here's a place where the philosopher just is smarter than the political scientist and the, yeah. But let me just say, I'm not gonna put it that strongly, although part of me wants to. Um, <laughs> look, as I'm sure you're familiar with and lots of people listening to us are familiar with, um, there are different kinds of things we call ignorance different kinds of cognitive state mm -hmm. that are called ignorance. Right. Um, and maybe there are even certain kinds of state uh, that are called ignorance that are not really altogether cognitive. They might be more effective, right? Mm -hmm. Like certain forms of racial hatred we call ignorance. Doesn't, not sure that it's right to think that that is a cognitive state, but let's just stick with the cognitive stuff. Okay. And here's the, uh, you know, it's some someday when I get a little bit more time and get my head together, uh, I'm, I'm gonna try to write a book on this, I think. Um, a lot of the public ignorance data, a lot of the data about the, the epistemic failings of the American citizen and citizens elsewhere, just to speak to your point, um, a lot of the instruments by which these data are collected um, are too brute or coarse to make what strike me as deeply important philosophical distinctions that are very familiar to you know anybody who's had a decent first two weeks in an undergraduate epistemology class, right? So just think about a couple of different ways in which somebody might be politically ignorant. You know, you don't know the three branches of government established in the United States. Okay, is it that I don't know because I forgot one? I would get the wrong answer on the test. And then somebody just says, it's the legislative and I'm like, oh crap, yeah, it's the legislative, darn, right? And now I got it, I, I, I couldn't remember it, I just guessed, right? So that's one ignorant, that's one way of being ignorant. Another way of being ignorant is for somebody to say, I know what the three of them are, right? Mm -hmm. It's the, it's, it's, it's the, uh, it's the guy in, it's the guy in charge, uh, it's the person who controls the factories and uh, it's, um, uh, you know, just imagine somebody just giving three branches that are just, you know, it's the minister of truth, it's the minister of art, and it's the party leader. Those are the three branches. So, okay, that guy gets the wrong answer on the, on the, on, on the poll as well. Ignorant of the three branches of government, just like the first guy, does not seem to me to be in the same state of ignorance as the first guy. And it seems to me that there's an important political difference between them that's not being tracked by this kind of data collection instrument. Imagine somebody who, um, uh, you know, gets, gets the, you know, thinks it's the legislative, the executive and the media. Just imagine somebody who thinks that, right? Forgets about uh, uh, the judicial and thinks it's the media. Okay, gets the wrong answer. But you might wanna say, well, wait a minute. What if, now we're just imagining a possible one. What if, you know, this person was kind of weirdly misled that the sources that otherwise should be regarded as reliable sources regularly were telling this person the media is, or is suggesting that the media is a branch of government. And that's why they think it, right? 
that still seems to me to be somebody who is ignorant in a certain sense, but not in the same sense as the other two. So let me just lay it out this way. The instruments by which we gather these uh, data about voter ignorance are too brute to capture the difference between true belief, false belief, right? True belief without justification, false belief with justification, false belief without justification. The, you know, in epistemology, one of the first things we learn is that, well, there's the way to evaluate the content of what you believe, what you believe is either true or false. Then there's this other kind of evaluation that winds up to be very complex, what we might call justification or entitlement or uh, warrant, whatever you want to call it, that has to do with how you assess your evidence. It might also have to do with how sensitive you are to the evidence that's out there. That looks like these are two different things that go into justification. But very quickly, you can see that in order to make sense of the political understanding as a purely cognitive thing that voters have, you need to get pretty nuanced about, right? The question of do they, is what they believe true or false? Then the separate questions about, for those who believe what's false, is it on the basis of incomplete but reliable evidence that because of its incompleteness is misleading? Is it on the basis of misleading but very, very easy to acquire evidence or what is regarded, would be regarded as evidence? Is it on the basis of the fact that evidence has been hid from them? Is it just on the basis of their epistemic recklessness? Now, it looks like a lot of the negative assessments of democracy on the basis of this literature attribute to vote to voters who have false beliefs about fundamental epistemic, uh, fundamental facts about their government are always quick to just attribute a kind of recklessness or irrationality to the voter. The voter has the false belief because they don't care about the evidence, haven't gone and looked for it, or have mishandled it in some way. And the way I read the, the data collection methods, it doesn't code for any of that. So all I'm going to say now is, <laughs> follow up, right? Uh, all I'm going to say now is, this is a deeply suggestive, uncommonly rich and robust collection of data about something we're calling voter ignorance or political ignorance. It shows something that is not good about Ameri the state of American of US democracy. I'm gonna even grant that. What it shows though, I think is entirely underdetermined by the evidence because the instruments just don't make the nuanced distinctions that I think we would need to make in order to get the full diagnosis. And so, last point, if I'm right about all that, the normative upshot, the prescription, seems to me to also be underdetermined. Like, if people are ignorant because they're subjected to misleading evidence or because the way that the media environment is set up makes it too difficult for them to separate out reliable sources from non-reliable sources. If all that's true, well, then we get, you know, you know, one kind of normative upshot, right? Figure out some way to disseminate information in a more reasonable way. Make it easier for citizens to do the cognitive work of democratic citizenship. If on the other hand, and I'm not, dismissing this out of hand. If on the other hand, 
Ilya Soman and Jason Brennan and the sort of uh, the epistocrats, the people who say, right, that because voter ignorance is the way that it is, we need to explore some deviation from democracy as we know it. Rule by experts or shrinking government so that ultimately government does very little and that's controlled by experts, right? Those are the two views roughly of Brennan and Soman, right? They might be right. So I'm not even saying these guys are wrong. I'm just saying we're not, it's not clear what the data show. So any broad sweeping prescription looks to me to be un insufficiently motivated by the data because it's too indeterminate. How's that? Uh, I mean, uh, that's interesting, I think. <laughs> but, but, but I mean- uh, Interesting, it's a very good bar. I like that. <laughs> uh, no, 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 I mean, I was just thinking that then there would be lots and lots of work to do in political science to sort of, I mean, I'm not sure if this would be the correct way to put it, but redo these studies, right? Uh, or to combine them with, and again, since I'm not a political science, I mean, I, I'm affiliated with the political science department. I, I don't, I, you know, I learn modal logic, not stats and methods, you know? So, <laughs> so I don't know how to think about the designing of better tools to get the kind of data we need. I think that we either, I don't know if we need to go redo, but we do need to more fine grain the kind of data that we have by way of new instruments. Let me say one other thing Okay. on this just very quickly, because I think that there is an emerging um, line of response to the voter ignorance stuff that um, looks promising to me, although I'm not ready to get on board with it. There's a certain kind of epistemic Democrat, that is a person who, like me, thinks that the case for democracy, at least in some, maybe large part, is an epistemic story. Um, I'm thinking about Elaine Landamore, um, uh, among others, um, uh, who thinks that um, the voter ignorance data um, don't get the prescriptive upshot that Brennan and uh, Soman and Bartels think that uh, they do. Um, because political intelligence is intrinsically collective. Um, the voter ignorance stuff is about individual mm -hmm. e epistemic shortcomings. Landamore drawing on some uh, uh, sort of results having to do with the wisdom of crowds sort of stuff, particularly this Hong Page, you know, diversity Trump's ability stuff, says, no, no, political intelligence is intrinsically collective, it emerges right? It's sort of supervenient on individual inputs. And the individual inputs at the end of the day don't matter. What matters much more, she argues, with I think compellingly, but I'm not ready to, you know, to dive in. Uh, she argues that um, what matters is the cognitive diversity of the group, rather more epistemically matters, is the cognitive diversity of the deliberating or the, of, the, of the demos, rather than the epistemic merits of any of the particular members. Interesting argument. It would be big news if it were, you know, if, if, if you can make it all work out, that would be a wonderful result, I think, for us Democrats. Yeah. So uh, one last topic then. We've been talking a lot about democracy. Uh, what about liberalism and how does it connect to democracy? Good. Um, you know, liberalism is another, almost like pragmatism. There's a lot of different views about what liberalism is. Um, so let's make a, a first cut distinction. Um, 
that I think has to be made and I'm going to make it in a way that's totally, I hope is not objectionable and then might say some more controversial things. Um, so let's make a distinction between liberalism in the idiom of political discourse, popular political discourse, and then liberalism as a sort of political philosophical framework. Mm -hmm. um, so by liberalism, I take it, uh, 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 Ricardo, you're not asking me about um, Bill Clinton and Barack Obama liberalism. Okay, good, good, good. No. So in the United States, and this even the vernacular changes from one uh, uh, country to the other, because liberalism in Germany just means something different as a political, you know, popular political term of of, of discourse, sure. or popular term of political discourse. Um, so we're talking about a philosophical framework, a philosophical framework that has its origins in um, uh, at least Locke, right? Maybe a little bit earlier. Um, if you go back or people go back and look at Plato, Plato's dialogue, the Crito, right? Well, one where Socrates is being, uh, Socrates' best friend is trying to convince him to escape from prison. Socrates gives this indirect set of arguments about why it's wrong to break the law. One trajectory in that argument is straightforwardly liberal because it's a social contractarian argument, right? It says the, the city says you made an agreement under fair conditions to obey the law. Our side of the bargain was to create social conditions where you could live a life and have a family and do a trade and all the rest. We kept up our bargain side of the bargain. Now you owe us straightforward uh, um, uh, uh, social contract argument that looks to me like fundamentally a liberal argument. And here's why. Not all social contractarian stories are liberal. Hobbes is not a liberal, arguably Rousseau is not a liberal, but Lockean uh, social contract story, uh, social contractarianism, and I think the, the germ of that is in this uh, Plato argument, uh, are liberal. Here's what liberalism is then as a philosophical framework for thinking about politics. And note, these are claims about how to think about politics. I don't think liberalism, uh, despite what despite long debates in the 80s and 90s in political philosophy, I don't think liberalism has to be understood as a theory about human nature or a theory about metaphysics or a theory about anything. It's a theory about how we're thinking when we're thinking about politics. Um, when we're thinking about politics, we think that the individual is normatively primary. It's the thing that comes first in our thinking. It's normatively prior, not only because it's first in our thinking, but the importance of the individual is normatively, uh, the, the individual is normatively more important than the collective. Um, uh, some people see in that some suspicious atomistic metaphysics. I'm just saying this is a theory about politics. I don't know that it required, I think it's perfectly consistent with whatever you want to say about individuals metaphysically. Um, that's the more controversial stuff that you can come back at me at um, with. Um, so we start with individuals. We understand individuals as having a politically significant status independent of the rights and privileges that are conferred on them by a state or by a collective, right? So part of liberal thinking is that when we're thinking about politics, which means we're thinking about states and laws and constitutions and collectives that exercise power that's coercive, right? 
But we're thinking about politics. We have to think that the individual has a sta normatively important status that must be adequately or duly acknowledged or recognized independently of what the founding documents or the state or the law says, that there are some constraints, therefore, on how the individual may be treated by the state or the collective in virtue of the fact that there's some moral status that they enjoy simply as they are understood apart from political ties and associations. Okay. Um, typically, this is spelled out in terms of rights, right? Natural rights. I don't mm -hmm. think we have to say that, but that's one way of understanding what are the, the, una the unalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, as the founding, one of the founding documents of my country puts it. Um, so um, that's one fundamental thing. Another fundamental thing is then the idea that the individual understood as having that, pr that, 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 that prior to politics status is equal to every other individual in that regard. So there's a fundamental commitment to the moral equality of persons from the point of view of politics. That doesn't mean that everybody is the same, that does not occlude or eradicate or, or erase difference. It just says from the point of view of politics, individuals not only have this standing that politics has to recognize, but individuals are equal with respect to that standing. So far, this should all be familiar to at least those listeners who live in liberal democratic societies. Um, now, here's the real crucial thing that I think is where, um, uh, where stuff gets even more tricky. And this is where I'm going to sort of plant my flag for a certain interpretation of liberalism. I'm not a social contractarian, I'm not a utilitarian. John Stuart Mill was a liberal, but for utilitarian reasons. You know, John Locke was a liberal, but for natural law reasons. Um, I'm what's called the justificatory liberal. I think the following. Given this fundamental premise of moral equality on the basis of this pre-political sense of an individual and his or her entitlement that constrains what the state may do, liberalism, as I'm ready to defend it, and as I understand it, is the thesis that when a collective, when a political collective in particular, introduces policy or acts in some way that exerts power over you, either requires you to do something you're not inclined to do, requires you to do something you don't want to do, don't think you should be made to do, the last part is important because you might want to you might want to do it, but don't think you should be made to do it. Right? <laughs> um, uh, anytime the state exercises power over you, there has to be a justification for it. And that justification, if it's going to be duly uh, recognizing of and respectful of your equal moral status, has to be formulable in terms that you could that are legible to you as reasons. That's what I think liberalism is. It's a just, again, this connects up in ways that we can get into if there's time with my epistemic conception of democracy. That's what the core of liberalism is. It's a justificatory enterprise. It says ex exercises of coercive power, all exercises of political power are coercive, right? Exercises of coercive power stand in need of justification and that justification has to be formulable in terms that are legible as reasons to the citizens over whom the power is exercised. 
What do you say about that? That that's now now we're really doing philosophy, right? <laughs> 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 we're not just talking about philosophy now. Now that's a real philosophical thesis that is um, not not it's not just my story, but it's not the only story there is about liberalism. But how does it sound to you? I mean, it sounds good, but I'm not a professor. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure if I'm a contractarian or uh, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure about or a utilitarian. I'm really not sure about that. So <laughs> perhaps uh, and taking into account the, the time, perhaps uh, we will we will wait for your next book, as you mentioned during the interview, about hopefully public ignorance. <laughs> and then perhaps we can get more into some of the nitty gritty about these kinds of questions. So, uh, That's good. yeah. Okay, so Dr. Talis, just before we go, would you like to just tell people where they can find you and your work on the internet? Oh, yeah. So um, I, I'm a professor at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, you know, a lot of my stuff is on the Vanderbilt Philosophy Department webpage. I'm also on Twitter. Uh, my handle is just my name with no spaces, Robert Talese. Um, although I should say maybe as a bit of warning, my Twitter is not particularly academic. It's mostly <laughs> jokes about academia and some uh, clips of my incredibly amateur guitar playing. Um, but um, that's where people can find me. And if anybody within earshot of my voice uh, uh, on this podcast uh, uh, has any interest, you know, you can feel free just to email me. My email is on, on the Vanderbilt webpage. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy to talk to people about, about, uh, about anything that might come up as a result of the conversation we've just had, Ricardo. Thank you. Great. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show again. No problem at all. It's good to uh, good to talk, and uh, let's keep in touch. Yeah, and uh, let's keep in touch. Hi guys, thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing and to keep the channel sustainable, please consider supporting me on Patreon or PayPal. All of the links are in the description box of this interview. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like, and hit the subscription button. The show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check the website at enlights.com. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters, Karen Litzke and Blanchett, Perga Larson, Lau Guerrero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingberg, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Ian Ricalania, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Ruth Gervoz, Wo Weingard, Rebecca Neuberger, Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegar, Rui Narcio, Arthur Coe, Zuc, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavanagh, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormir, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernadini, Alexander Dunbauer, Fergal Cusson, Ivan Bodrin, Kuala Herzog, Don Ross, Jonathan Leibrand, Aslan Bullet, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W. John Weira, Tom Hamel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Dajda Araujo, Romain Roach, Dermitri Gregoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavlos Tazevsky, Nelek Bach, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Al Ortiz, Guy Madison, 
Gary G. Hellman, João Linhares, Lida Cosmidis, Saima Afzal, Adrian Gage, Nick Golden, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Jules Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litzke, Dennis Cook, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Todd Shackleford, Sunny Smith and John Wisman, My Producers Isar Webb, Jim Frank, Lucas Tafiniak, Luis Caetano, Tom Wagner, Dan Curtis Dixon, John Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Guidi, Sardus Francis, Thomas Trumbull and Nuno Welder, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, James Pratt, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codriano, and Bogdan Canivet. Thank you for all.